everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib. I can't believe this is almost a year when we released our first uh, real podcast after recording a couple of demos. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, most of you who follow me already know her. Uh, she goes by uh, the Twitter handle of Pansreed and also you know, known as Susie. That's her real name. It's an honor, Susie, to have you here. Hi, Saqib. How are you? Hi, everybody. Doing really well. So... Uh, yeah, the tennis season uh, is reaching its climax. WTA is, is already playing the year-end finale, and the men still have a couple of mo- more weeks before they end the season in London. So uh, let's start with WTA, Susie. So what are you doing? Sure. Uh, with, with seven sure. girls, uh, realistically, with a mathematical chance of finishing the year's number one, uh, I don't think that's ever happened before at the, with the year-end. Do you? No, I don't think it has. And the thing that I find very interesting about that is that there is one word that I've noticed has cropped up about the WTA, particularly this year in the absence, well, since January, in the absence of Serena, is this word inconsistency, which I actually haven't really enjoyed hearing that word about inconsistency to describe the women's tour. Interestingly enough, I've actually found this season to be one of the most interesting and the most exciting and actually hopefully it's been a season which has increased the fan base as well because there really have been some fantastic stories and to actually to be at this stage now in late October wherever we are and to have seven girls who can still have a chance of being number one that should be celebrated I think and I don't think that the negativity of, of inconsistency is a great description what yeah, do you I, think I think it's a, it's a great uh... You know, it's a great year for the women's tennis, and you are absolutely right. Sometimes, uh, without even acknowledging, we do have this double standard that still exists. And uh, again, I can speak for my own. Uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, we should have a independent WTA conversation. And a lot of these inconsistencies kind of fall back on how glorious the ATP Big Four have been. And you know, this is exactly what the sport needs. Serena is such a super force, and such a great player and you took her out and that just showed the depth in the women's game and every week uh, there has been a new story Caroline Garcia is fabulous uh, Switalina should have been number one many times already and uh, you're right this is this is the kind of year that the sports uh, the sport needs I think it's very interesting but I think things have been colored slightly by the ATP and the fact that we have had this extraordinary consistency from Roger Rafa and then Novak over that period of a couple of years, and then Andy coming in, particularly with that tremendous run. And I think that has coloured the attitude to the WTA, and they've missed the excitement of the newness coming through with people like Ostapenko, people like Halep trying and trying and trying again and not giving up to get to number one. The push from Svisselina, the late push now from Garcia, who suddenly seems to put all the elements of her game together you know, this is fantastic. And I know there are a lot of people out there who celebrate it. But there are still people who have their doubts and just say, oh, it's because nobody can actually hold it together for longer than two, three, four, five weeks. Well, actually, there are so many things that go into keeping your game together, as we know, and I'm not going to list them, we all know it can be about injury, it can be about form, it can be about the situation with the coach, there you are, I've just listed them. But I think there is sometimes a tendency, and I see it on 10, tennis twitter to be very black and white about a situation and actually there are many nuances that go into keeping your form so i think we're seeing that and i think i hope 
that we get some really fantastic matches in Singapore. The first two were not quite as exciting as they could have been, but I think the court speed is going to have an effect. It looked slow to me. Did you watch the matches today? No, I haven't watched it yet. I probably hope to catch some of the highlights later on today. But yeah, that uh, I think we had a brief chat on Twitter this morning. Uh, uh, I know you said Pliskova over Venus is something you expected, but uh, the scoreline, not so. No, I, ex- I did expect Pliskova to win, but I actually thought that it would be closer than that. Um, and V just seemed to struggle to hit through the court. Now, that seemed to me that that tells me the court is slow. But then again, Pliskova actually attacked very hard and flat. She hit her cross-court backhand particularly well and kept V very much on the stretch. But as we all know with V, if she can't really find the consistency with the first serve, then she's going to yeah. get attacked on the second serve. And then on the, in the second match... It's very easy to say that Ostapenko, it's her first time there. She lacks the experience. But then again, she's not going to adapt her game. So she continued to try and hit, hit, hit. But Muguruza was very, very solid, apart from just a brief hiccup towards the very end of the match. But she was pretty solid. And those two matches told me that both Pliskova and Muguruza they are on the hunt to get back that number one. They've both been there. They've had the taste of being number one. Uh, speaking they want of Pliskova, you think so, uh, we'll see. bringing in Renee Stubbs at the very last tournament or maybe last month of the season, uh, is that kind of a permanent uh, partnership or is just something on a trial basis? Because uh, I don't know. I think from what I understand, and I do not know all the detail, you may, you may be able to tell me more or somebody else can, but I understand there has been a bit of a an issue with um, her trying to recruit a new coach. I understand that she has approached and possibly even now recruited Strichova's old coach, um, well, obviously former coach, and I understand there has been a bit of a fallout about that um, and that this is just a pro-tem situation having Rene there. Is that what you understand? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly was a little surprised, uh, you know, to do a change this late. Normally this kind of a change would happen uh, especially if you're going for a number one ranking, uh, maybe in the off-season. But more power to her. I mean, uh, there doesn't have to be a specific template when you bring these coaches in. Uh, yeah, sticking to this uh, same group we are talking about, I definitely think this is the more star-studded group if there is a group of death here. Yeah, it's, it, that's an interesting um, view, isn't it? Because why does it appear to be more star-studded? Because perhaps they're regarded as being the big hitters, the bigger names? I don't know. It does seem to have turned out to be a group of big hitters versus a group of retrievers. I don't like using the word pusher because it always seems to have a negative connotation, but the people who are hunting down the board are prepared to run all day. Now, it may be that that court, from what we saw today, is going to lend itself to the group of retrievers, to the Halleps and the Svitolinas and the Wozniakis, who can run all day long. But there does seem to be that contrast between the two groups and it'll be interesting to see which two come from each group so that we actually then get those contrast of style matches because in the first few days we're not going to see so much of the contrast of styles I think tomorrow is it Halep um, who is she who is she playing off tomorrow she's got her match against Garcia so she's obviously going to try and revenge her loss 
from the Asian swing. She's obviously going to try and keep the head-to-head because she's currently 2-1 ahead on the head-to-head. And then you've got Wozniacki against Svitolina. And Caro has obviously never beaten her. That's a 0-3 head-to-head. So I'm interested to see whether Woz can finally overturn that, that stat. Yeah, that's an interesting stat, isn't it? And also Svitolina, I believe, has a winning record uh, combined, I think, 6-3. Uh, with the other contestants in the group. So that group is also, I mean, evenly poised with a lot of excellent movers there. And then uh, Caroline Garcia has a late entry there yeah. uh, with her amazing run in Asia. Uh, and you could say you could say that Caroline is the girl who's coming in on the best form, in the best form of her life. You know, Nigel Sears was saying on the TV today that, you know, she's always had all the elements to her game, big serve, strong forehand, great defense, great movement, great athlete. But she's never managed, it seemed, to have all those elements functioning all at the same time. And suddenly she's come in and everything just looks complete. The package seems to be there. The question for me, Saqib, is can she actually maintain that throughout these championships? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I always, uh, whatever I've seen of her here and there, I always thought, you know, she's kind of playing below her potential. And now she's put on an amazing run and... uh, she made her way, she fought her way and just, you know, for the last spot. Yeah. And now, uh, I don't know, sometimes this happens in the ATP as well. A guy gets hot and then, you know, a player gets hot and they make that cut. Now, to me, is it, does she believe she belongs here? Because is it all happening too soon? Because for a while it did not click for her. And now uh, if she's going to play like uh, there's nothing to lose, she can definitely do a lot of damage in this event. Uh, I don't know what the mindset is she has to have she has to have sh- huge confidence coming in she's clearly pretty fit there's, i don't think there's any injury there i think that she's been home after asia and i think she's recouped in terms of that thigh injury that she appeared to pick up that slight thigh injury when she was in wuhan but she's got to come in with great confidence and hey we all know what andy murray said about her back in goodness knows when that there was yep. a future number 1 so maybe finally she's going to, as you say, start to believe and see that she is definitely a top five player. Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see how both these groups uh, unfold. Uh, are you picking any favourites out of this group before the first ball is being struck? Or? I, It's very tough, isn't it? I mean, my, my gut instinct, but they're playing each other first off tomorrow, is Halep and Garcia. Um, Halep, because, you know, she's finally got to number one and... I know she comes in for a lot of criticism. She seems to be a kind of Marmite player. People either really admire and love her or they just don't get her tennis at all. She's a fantastic athlete. That is the first thing you have to say. And if those that court lends itself to long rallies, you know, she's going to be in there right to the end. So my initial pick, actually, funnily enough, was Halep and Garcia. Um, but we'll see what Svitolina has to say. Yeah, I think I, I may slightly differ. I think it's uh, Garcia and Svitolina for me. I think Halep, uh, you know, reaching the summit, then beating Sharapova, she had a lot of momentum and she did, uh, you know, check some boxes that were there for forever. So, I don't know, this is this is a tough group for her. Uh, let's see how it goes. Uh, not by much, but I think uh, Svitolina and Garcia may be, you know, standing as the two girls who, that, who advanced to the semifinals from this. Gosh, that's interesting because I'm hoping that Darren Cahill, obviously he's going to be out there because I don't think he was in 
yeah, I don't know. He was he in China? I can't remember. I don't think. I think Andre Powell was there, right? Andre Powell stepped in. The former. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And actually, what I did notice in China was that her serve was much, much more emphatic. Um, now they they are saying that I think he was partly responsible. He's been working on her serve with her. But I'm hoping that, you know, Darren's back in her camp. He's going to say, look, you see, you can do it. You know, we've always believed in you. You've always believed in it. Keep it going. So at the moment, I'm picking Hallett. But as you say, that group is very tough to pick two out of. Yeah, especially if the surface is lending to longer rallies, then, you know, the players with uh, better foot uh, fitness and better movement can always prevail in this kind of, because it won't lend to first strike tennis, which I think would suit more, uh, the playing style of Caroline Garcia, but yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of intriguing matches. And then the other thing I think I always have to question slightly about Svitolina is her mindset when she can be in front. You know, she does sometimes tighten up horribly, and then before you know it, the game is you know run away from her. So I think you need to just keep an eye on that. But I think it's a very intriguing group. I do think it's a very intriguing group. It is, and almost every player has that uh, pressure, probably less on the likes of Venus who have done it, but every player has uh, that uh, immense pressure of, you know, of securing the year-end number one, which means a lot. I think that's like a, that's like a record by itself. Sometimes we live in an era, an era when we are so focused on slams. I think year-end number one is as special as it comes because it's just a race from the first to the last day of the calendar. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree with you. I mean, there's an awful lot of talk, isn't there? I mean, we just dovetail into the ATP about, you know, player of the year. Well, for me, it's very difficult to say that the player of the year is not the person who has the number one by their name. You know, you can talk about people having great tournaments or great runs halfway through the season, and maybe somebody is number one like Pliskova for a few weeks or Muguruza for a few weeks. But then actually, yes, you're right. It gets to the end of the year, the awards are handed out, and everyone remembers that year in number one. Absolutely right. No, interesting you bring that comparison. I was saving that uh, till we go to the Fedal part of the conversation, but since, you know, uh, it's on the table now. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with it. I respect the rankings. Last year on the podcast, me and Anand were going back and forth, and I said, look, Djokovic may be the man of the year, but Andy Murray is a deserving yeah. number one. So both accolades can coexist. It doesn't if you are number one in computer, you have to be the overwhelmingly best player, but you cannot shortchange someone who accumulated the points based on the 52 weeks. So similarly in Federer and Nadal, they both have pretty much split honors and the World Tour Finals, if Federer wins it, it's okay to make a case for him to be the MVP while Nadal is the best player, but it's also okay to give both accolades to Nadal. A, I think, I it's, think a it's a great discussion. discussion. And actually, you know, the fact that Roger didn't play clay, and I know all the Fed fans out there are going to go, ooh, boo, hiss, you know, that's a big factor for not making him player of the year. And I know it was deliberate and I know it paid off hugely because he then ended up winning Wimbledon. But the net result is that he gave up the possibility of gaining extra points in that period of the year. So effectively, you could say that he almost gave up the chase for number one then. Now, if he wins Basel and then if, yes, he wins London, we're talking a different story. But, you know, to not play a big chunk of the year you have to take the consequences uh Susie, it's a great point but i think in hindsight the information we have today we did not have this in may 
and I kind of uh, uh, see it a little differently. I think it was a calculated move on Team Federer part because they want oh, to maximize his chance yeah. to win Wimbledon. But and but they also knew deep down if his health stays, he will have a shot at uh, number one. Why? Because Nadal hadn't won French in two years and. Uh, he just wanted to see how Nadal is going to be on clay. And second, he did not envision, and most of us didn't envision, uh, Rafa Nadal winning a slam on hard courts when he hadn't won anything on hard courts since Doha 2014. So I think that's where some of the calculations, you know, were uh, misfired, and Nadal, credit to him. He just kept improving. He came through a draw in New York where it wasn't as tough, but he did his part by winning the title, and then he put on a show after Luca Pui missed that uh, forehand in Beijing, then he went on this run that, you know, had him 15, yeah, 16 I, wins in a row. I totally take that point. That is a huge point. And I think yeah. actually that Matt Zemek wrote a great paper on that. I don't know if you saw it, um, that actually, you know, that Roger's surge, actually, Rafa added to his legacy because Roger has made, as it were, Nadal improve on hard as well. So this constant improvement, one on the other, this constant push, one on the other, has actually made this year even better and yep. has made each player even better in their pursuit of, you know, further excellence. That was a great paper. Did you get, did you read that? Yes. I did, and then uh, I also read like something similar he wrote like uh, when Federer went to Montreal, he said that was a calculated risk that backfired because he he's usually you know doesn't play Montreal at least for the last few years and goes yeah. to Cincinnati yeah. but he he Roger was also eyeing number one rightfully so because he valued no, it and so I, much. I have nothing and, but admiration uh, for both then, of you know, them. Work out the you know, at the end of the day why why did why uh, do they play professional sport? They play professional sport because they want to absolutely reach the summit, the absolute top. And in tennis, that is about being number one. And we can all remember Roger saying many times, you know, it doesn't matter if you're two, three, four, five. There is no difference between two and five. The only thing, the only number that matters is number one. Yes, I mean, especially, you know, that's why once you're president, you're never interested in becoming vice president. You know, that's that's the peak. You're, you, you know, <laughs> you know who, who cares, you know, after that uh, Oh, oh dear. Oh. A few winners today, like in Juan Martin Del Potro, who's, uh, who's had kind of a very interesting year. When he came back last year, he built on some momentum in Olympics and then uh, had an upset at Wimbledon of Wawrinka and uh, played some memorable matches with Andy Murray. Uh, now, this year, we all expected you know fitness to be less of an issue. Fine, if he's injured, he can take some time off. But he's had this... Uh, uh, and this is a question that is coming from you know someone who follows the podcast, and you also know her pretty well, Laura. She wants to know: uh, is the de- is this the new default mode of Del Potro that he's nursing some niggle or even fatigue, and all of a sudden he can play lights out tennis? So, is this something the new norm? I think it's very interesting because I've been thinking that all year. I thought, what is this pattern that Del Potro is giving us this year? And I've found it quite hard to work out. I think. A lot of it, I would agree with Laura, I think it is about managing his fitness. Um, and interestingly enough, he seemed to have, to have saved the best for last. He actually seems to be coming into a really hot streak now um, from the US Open, which obviously gave him quite a good stepping 
um, springboard. And then he seems to be saving the best, as I said, for the end of the season. And he looked very strong today. Did you watch the match against Grigor? I only caught the first set in a bit, but he was hitting the ball incredibly cleanly and I thought incredibly hard on his backhand as well. Yes, he, he was really playing some lights out tennis and I think it's a, it's like a big engine like what we used for Wawrinka last year. I think he's warming up and if he has, you know, uh, if he has a no fatigue factor going in, he'll be a threat in Basel. I think on those courts, he's beaten Roger twice there, if you remember, yeah. in, I think, uh, 2012 and 2013. So, yeah, he... he he looks primed for a deep run, and and mathematically he still has a shot for London. So it's, there's a lot to play for. Yes, I had a look at that because I was looking at the top seven, who are basically barring a complete and utter disaster, are more or less there. But then you look at the the next group. Um, you know, there's PCB and there's Query and there's Kevin. And then there's Delpo, who's only about 500, less than 500 points behind PCB. And it's interesting that PCB really hasn't refound his form from the US Open. And I don't know whether he's still carrying a niggle of a stomach strain because he had that injury, didn't he, sometime after the US Open. Um, Kevin has been sort of a bit up and down, but again, hasn't reached the heights of his US Open run. Query obviously was very hot earlier in the year um, and again has seemed a little bit flat since. So it is possible that Delpo could make that run and actually even Joe Willie could come and do a Carolyn, a Carolyn Garcia and actually, you know, emulate um, his, hello, are you still there? Sorry, I just yeah, lost you for a minute. And emulate his countrywoman. That would be fascinating. I think actually Delpro would be a great addition to London. Um, I think that would get a lot more fans in there because there is a danger that you know there's no Murray that has a that has a big effect on ticket sales in London. There's no Stan. There's obviously no Djokovic. Um, and I think that to just have that one extra name would be just a fantastic finish but it's interesting that you talk just about Basel I actually going back to what Laura was saying about you know how Delpo is managing his season I actually see him now as a big threat for next year if he can maintain this fitness if he can really schedule well he's now back top 20 I know he's dropped a couple of places because he was defending Stockholm so I think he's back at about number 19 but you know he therefore is going to be a really difficult opponent early on in a draw. So the Australian Open, we'll see. Absolutely right. I mean, a healthy Del Potro is really something that the game needs because he's, I think, after Federer and Nadal, he's probably the most, you know, popular guy on the tour worldwide. And fans just, you know, have developed this, uh, you know, soft corner for him. I mean, he's a great, great player, but they just root for him. He's a great story. So you're right, absolutely. If he makes a magical run somehow and qualifies for London, that's going to be a boost for the tournament. Uh, I remember, again, you know, like in 97 when Becker had uh, started playing uh, only, I think, some tournaments, not a full calendar, and the World Tour finals were in Hanover, Germany. This is the year when Agassi was still struggling in the 140s. The tournament needed, you know, it was in Germany, and this is the first year the tournament yeah. didn't have Becker. It was Sampras, Korecha, and some of the folks like Rafter making his first turn. So it was a very depleted field. I remember commentators saying that for this tournament, they should have given a wild card to Boris Becker because, you know, indoors Germany, that was huge back then. So similarly, uh, Juan Martin Del Potro can inject some much-needed mm-hmm. life 
uh, in the World Tour Finals with all the injuries and uh, early, you know, season uh, call-offs, so you can say now. Yeah, that, that'll be a great story. And uh, what do you think of uh, Nick Kyrgios? We've talked about him so often. Did you see him pulling the plug the way he did last week after thing? Yeah, I didn't actually see that match, no, but I saw the fallout from f- from it. Um, I was really hoping that Nick was going to make a push for the World Tour Finals. But actually, now that he has revealed that he's been struggling, as we all suspected for so long with this hip, um, I think he's absolutely made the right decision. And part of me, only because I'm such a big fan and I sort of like, there's a kind of cohort of us that sort of seek to almost protect him from the the trolls out, out there on social media. I almost wished he'd pulled it earlier and said, you know, this is the reality. I have tried my damn best, but I'm really struggling. I do not want to have surgery. So he's done it now. I just almost wish he'd done it a month earlier. So let's stick to Curious. I, I don't know if you heard, I mean, uh, it's been almost uh, a year when Peter Koda came on this podcast and I asked him about Curious because like you, I also have, you know, I root for Curious because I think he's good for tennis and his upside, you know, so much yeah. there. And he said uh, the only reason Kyrgios is being singled out these days is because there's so much media, there's, you know, microphones all over. And he said McEnroe, when Corda played him and all these guys, there was a lot being said that was never captured in a way that the fans would be aware. So I know you are kind of vested as a fan in Nick. So what is the upside that keeps you vested? That's another question from uh, Kathy in Australia. Oh my God, his tennis. I mean, he's he's just oozing with talent. I mean, I first saw him as junior at Wimbledon on an outside court in junior Wimbledon, I mean, quite a few years ago. And I was absolutely rooted to the spot. I couldn't leave the court because he, he was just extremely special. Um, and as I say, the talent is obviously there for everybody to, to see. He has a way of engaging the fans. Now, you could say that there's a, you know, it's a negative way as well as a positive way. But the fact is that he makes you want to watch him. And that is so important in today's tennis. You have to retain the fans. And if someone makes you want to watch him, you know, you've got to keep it. You've got to fight to keep it. I was... I was just going to say, just briefly going back to Del Potro and those very interesting comments you made, Sakib, about um, Boris Becker and Hanover and the wild card. I was on a podcast fairly recently with Andrine and we were talking about formats and how, in my very humble opinion, I think some of the tried and tested formulas have become slightly tired. And I think one of those is the World Tour Finals. It's been in London, I think, now for probably too long. Um, Now, whilst I don't want it to become like the next-gen finals in Milan with the best of four and some of the other things that I don't necessarily agree with, I do think there is is a perhaps need to discuss the format because I was just looking at the lineup that we're going to get in London. Goffin looked exhausted, in that match in Antwerp. I don't know if you caught it against Stefanos. No, I, I only followed the scores. Just so they were not showing it live on tennis. Yeah, he looked like, to quote um, somebody I follow on Twitter, they said he looked like the walking dead. And you sort of knew it was the end of the season. You know, 
it was just typical of the time of year and what we're now looking at with in terms of these the, the physicality that the tennis players are putting up with you know nearly 11 out of 12 months and obviously golf fans priority has to be davis cup i was very surprised to see that he's still playing in basel i actually genuinely thought that he would withdraw because he's pretty close to getting to london maybe he's doing it because he just wants to make sure he guarantees Will he then play Paris? And then he, he literally will have one week's rest, then he'll have World Tour Finals, and then he'll have DC. And we all know what happened to Roger when he came in slightly overplayed. He exerted himself too much against Stan in that semi-final and then couldn't play in the final. You know, So you've got Goffin, who looks knackered. You've got team who cannot win a game at the moment, cannot win a match. Um, and I wanted actually to have a chat with you about that because I cannot fathom quite what is going on there um he almost looks too too desperate on court almost like he's you know trying too hard and becomes over invested and then just forgets how to play instinctively so he hasn't he needs a run in vienna don't you think desperately absolutely i I actually wrote something which i'm going to release as well a slight you know uh blog on what's going on with Dominic team. And interestingly, uh, I was looking at some of the numbers on the ATP site. Last year, at the same point, coming into Vienna, he had won 31 hardcore matches. And this year, he'd only, he's barely won 22 of the 40 he has played. And this year, he's also losing to players who are not that big serving Kevin Anderson, Sam Query types. He's actually yeah. three, game, three match losing streaks since the Labor Cup. So it, it's interesting case study. I know this is one guy, unlike Nick and Sasha, he probably doesn't have you know, that big a weapon, but I think he's as talented. He's a workhorse. Uh, that's the only way he knows. And even Gunther Bresnik, I think that's a very old school way of, you know, uh, coaching when they play more. And he thinks if you can't play 100 matches a year, you know, you shouldn't be in this business. So I don't know. I mean, is team overplayed or underplayed? Because in Labor Cup, I thought he was just warming the bench. And after that, he, after the match uh, he won against Isner in in Prague, I thought that would at least serve him some confidence and he could put on some of a run. And now I'm as confused as anyone. His losses to Pella and then Johnson and one more loss, I think, in China somewhere. So he's just, he has won one set in the last three matches. And now he opens against inform Russian Andre Rublev in, in his hometown. But I'm uh, 100% with you. He needs to win. I was talking to one of our Twitter friends, Florian, who's, who really knows the Austrian tennis scene. And he said... People see the upside of this guy, but they kind of haven't forgiven him some of his uh, lopsided interest in Davis Cup because he's measured against the likes of Thomas Muster, who had a great Davis Cup, uh, you know, record, and uh, he badly needs a run, you know, to mend some fences and also for his personal uh, form going into London, he will be winning some. Matches. Yeah. There's, there's, two, there's two things that I always ask myself about team. And the first is that when he gets into a situation during a match where he's struggling, he is unable to change tactics. He still plays very deep. He still takes these enormous cuts at the ball, doesn't try and take anything early, doesn't try and play up the court. Um, so that's one thing. And then my second question, and I say I have no answers to this, is is he right for a coaching change? He's been under that umbrella for a very, very long time. And, you know, sometimes just a different voice in your ear, yeah. just a different angle in your ear, or maybe there's just adding another coach to the team. I don't know. 
could that work for him? We'll see. We'll see in Vienna this week. I think it's a key week for him. Yeah, knowing uh, what I've heard from uh, you know some of the sources uh, or friends I have who know the Austrian scene, they say team's uh, parents are kind of uh, they go way back with the Bresnik uh, Foundation and uh, Bresnik showed interest in team, and this is more like you know when he was very young. So I don't think they have crossed, even though this has been suggested, the thought has crossed their mind that there should be a change. And uh, while I'm I'm fully with you, a new voice, maybe on a part-time basis, could be useful. Yeah. Because this guy has a lot of game, and he, he's kind of underperforming, and he's a little older than the rest of you know Kyrgios and Sasha Zverev. So you're absolutely right, but uh, I don't expect that change uh, to come to fruition anytime soon. Maybe in a couple of years, if the trend continues, and he, if he doesn't win Roland Garros, then... I think the exactly. noise is louder. And then just very quickly, just to finish on my thoughts on the, the World Tour Finals and the need for a change. So you then got Sasha. Sasha's obviously got this dilemma as to whether he goes to Milan and he comes to London. Personally, I think he shouldn't go to Milan. I think that if he wants to really show that he's up there with the big boys, um, then he doesn't actually need Milan. And I think that people, I think people would understand him if he made that decision. I absolutely agree with you. And I think someone was even saying that a while back on Twitter, uh, some, there was some commentary about that, how he would just be there promoting the event because, you know, it's more like he qualified for the main event. And why would he risk? Because he, he's a legit, I think, along with Federer and Nadal, he's the third guy who can yeah. win London. So why would he jeopardize his chance of overplaying? I think he would just attend the event with the ATP, you know, establishment and promoted, and he would just be there. It'll be like an NBA All-Star game when the young guys are playing and Sasha would say, guys, you know, I really belong in a different league now. He would just be there suited in street clothes. <laughs> I expect to but I don't expect him to to be hitting, you know, balls. Maybe he'll just practice with some of these yeah. guys. But I think his, his eyes are set on the big prize. And then you've got Chilich, who actually came good on the in the Asian swing. He actually played a very solid match against Rafa. Um... You know, he obviously just missed out on the end. In the end, he wasn't quite brave enough to come to net when he could have come to net. He wasn't quite brave enough to play as up the court and take the ball as early. And that's when you realise, when you see a Chilich playing Nadal and then you see a Roger playing Nadal almost sort of within, you know, the next week and you see the style of play and you realise that actually if you can work out Nadal's play on an indoor hard court, you know, then he is beatable. He is a great player, but on an indoor hard court, he is beatable because of the way that he plays, the patterns of play. And Roger, for the moment, how long will it last, has worked it out. Chilich was pretty close to working out, but couldn't quite make the final blow. And the same with Grigor. It's really interesting that the closest matches that Grigor's had this year have, have been against Rafa. You know, if you go back to the Australian Open and then you go to um, Beijing... Very, very tight matches, but he can't quite land that final blow. Um, so, yeah, so you've got a you know, great, great group in London, but some of them have got a lot to prove before they even get there. Uh, yeah, I agree. Dimitrov has, uh, has to prove that he can uh, you know, be on the same court as Roger and, and Rafa and, uh, and get a win because now he's at way past the stage where a good, good fight is going to just uh, get him accolades. You know, the book. But he's had a great season. If you look back at where he's come from, you know, because he was one of the lost boys. Was he ever going to come back from being a lost boy? And he has had probably his best season. No, 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 no doubt he has. But I think the only metric that would count now is, is a win. 
I think uh, we are yeah. way beyond. You know, he can play. We all know he can play, and we have also stopped comparing the you know stop the federal comparisons because those are not valid. Those put so much pressure. He's his own man, but at the same time, uh, to get out of the lost boy category, he has to come out with a win, and you know, reestablish. Yeah. So hey, what do you think? You know, maybe the World Tour Finals should, should take a one one leap of faith from Milan and throw in a wild card. I just I think sometimes that a lot of these players get to the end of the season, and I would say this is probably reflective of the last couple of years. And some of the matches can be very flat because the t- the players are so tired. Um, so I just have to hope that we do get great matches in London. And I'm not sitting there thinking, oh my god, we should have chucked. Delpo in as a wild card, or we should have chucked in Diego as a wild card. Whoever's made the greatest leap in rankings during that year, um, but I think the format does need to be looked at. I think the round robin can be unsatisfying. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Or maybe they can make a field of ten. The top two should get a bye to like uh, you know semifinals, and the other seven or eight can fight it out, and then we can you know like American football does, or maybe. We should make it top six instead of top eight. Just yeah, you're right. It, this needs to be revamped. It's, it's way too predictable, or or maybe others yeah. need to step up. And you know, when the top four dominance is finished, then maybe this kind of format won't be that boring because then you won't exactly know who will come out. But right now, you. Know. Well, I think we could. I think we could sit here, probably pretty comfortably today, and say that you know, once the top four have gone, or even the top two has gone, it is very highly conceivable that we could have a situation um, similar to that that we've got in the WTA, that we've got seven or eight players who are vying for that number one. And before we uh, you know, wrap this up, I know there's plenty of topics. Uh, who are your biggest stories out of the top guys? Uh, is this Schwartzman? Is this Jamor? Is it Manorino? What are you Oh, I am, I am thrilled about Diego's season. He's now a career high. I'm thrilled about Demir. I remember when I first saw Demir playing, I think it was at the French Open when he played Roger. I can't remember the year. Do you remember that? Yes. So I keep when he had a really lovely match I against Roger at Roland Garros. 2014 Yeah. And I thought, you have got, first of all, he's so quick. He has great hands, great court craft, um, and was totally unfazed about being on the same court as the big guys. And I, I'm thrilled for his season. He's got two titles, both in Russia. So clearly he's going to have a lot of fans there, which is fantastic. Um, and Diego, I have always admired his fantastic technique, as I'm sure a lot of people out there do. He's just a beautiful well, he striker of the I think ball, he's don't a, you think? only like a few inches. But I mean, his back is a thing of beauty. It's a thing of absolute beauty, totally agree. And when you look at, you know, his physical attributes, obviously he's very quick, he's got this great technique, but, you know, at the end of the day, you can't get away from the fact that he is a small guy. And to have him up there batting with the best and taking them on and coming out and doing what he's done, I think is, you know, it's a great message out there that you can be a great player, whether you are six foot six or whether you are five foot eight. So... Credit to him. And he's fun to watch, too. We want players who are fun to watch. Now, he plays a lot of hard. I've seen him uh, in uh, Miami. I was courtside. Uh, see him take, take out uh, Hashinov. That was, you know, a great performance. Again, you know, something Diego thrives on. He's built on an excellent yeah. player. And I won't be surprised if he stays around the ranking or maybe even goes higher as, you know, we yes. 2018. I'm, and just the last person that you mentioned, I've always had... Um, great admiration for Manorino actually and 
you know, it would be quite feasible to say that he's been probably up there amongst the best French players this this season. And I was, I've been long been an advocate that he should have been called up for Davis Cup before he's been called up. Um, but I understand that there wasn't really a relationship there for whatever reason. I don't know the ins and outs. So I was very pleased to see that he finally did get his his call up um, in the last tie. I and mean, obviously he didn't play, but it was great to see him as part of the group on the bench along with the other guys. Hey, Susie, it was awesome. Well, good luck with the editing. And as I say, um, it's been an absolute pleasure. I have really enjoyed the conversation um, and look forward to doing it again. Likewise, yeah, we'll definitely have you here and it was a, a great talk as I expected. Have a great day and I'll release this very soon. Thanks, Susie. Thanks, Aki. Bye. <laughs>